Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me as always is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? Woof. Well, the legislature decided to get to work this week. Well, so. Yeah, the legislature is not great. No, it is not great. Uh, and, and there's a lot of stuff happening. Everything's starting to move. Uh, and, and of course, that's going to take up a big chunk of the show. But that's not the only huge news that happened uh, since we last recorded. The Department of Justice, which is you know part of the federal government, released a very significant finding document about the Louisville Metro Police Department. And there's a lot of stuff that's happened since then. So that's actually how we're going to start the show. Jasmine's going to tell us about the DOJ's findings and what they mean for Louisville, how things are going to happen for from here on out, there's this consent decree, which may be a word you've heard thrown around in the past week, but we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. And yeah, we are going to do that. And then we are going to talk about everything that's happened to the legislature up until now, which is quite a bit. And so that is going to take a long time. That's a lot of stuff to talk about. So we have no guest. That's going to be the show. Uh, and, and trust us, it's going to be plenty. So Jasmine, without any further ado, tell us about the DOJ. All right. So the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ released its findings from its investigation into LMPD in a 90 page report last Wednesday. Um, And so this investigation covered quite a bit, but, you know, only from 2016 to 2021. So they're looking at um, five years of, of LMPD. And Attorney General Merrick Garland said that hundreds of witnesses were spoken to including police officers, citizens, clergy, defense attorneys, judges, and others. They also said that they reviewed thousands of hours of body cam. Um, And as someone who's, you know, worked in the system, I would think body cam would be very revealing um, from my own experience. The things that happen on body cam, the things that are said by officers, um, I would think you would find a lot there yeah yeah i i don't disagree uh you know it, it, body games are one of those things where people are have like criticized in the past for not creating change but i think that this is a pretty good example of how how it, they can be successful as a big piece of investigations like this also just for clarification in case you needed to know this is the federal department of justice the federal right. attorney general merrick garland and and that's that's in, that's biden's administration not andy Bashir, not D- daniel cameron we're talking about the federal government here yeah we don't we we have the justice and safety cabinet and then departments within that but i don't think there's anything called just the doj no probably here, not but, but just in case you're curious we are talking about the federal government here yeah yeah we are um so merrick garland said that LMPD has practiced an aggressive style of policing that it deploys selectively, especially against black people, but also against vulnerable people throughout the city. Um, He said that LMPD cites people for minor offenses like wide turns and broken taillights, while serious crimes like sexual assaults and homicides go unsolved. So no surprises there. For me, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that's that's been kind of my experience. If you have um, friends on the defense bar, these are not surprising findings. A, a lot of these aren't, uh, and especially that one. Yeah, yeah. So there there are seven main findings from the report, and we'll go through each one pretty quickly, but maybe talk about a few specific examples within each one because they're kind of broad. And then the report kind of breaks some of them down like A, B, C and talks about specific instances. So the first one was that LMPD uses excessive force, including unjustified neck restraints, unreasonable use of canines like police dogs and tasers. They also found kind of within this finding that there were unclear policies and review of excessive force incidents it said that incidents would be reviewed, but supervisors would fail to actually identify the misconduct. Um, some of the incidents named included using police dogs where there's no threat um, and also allowing dogs to bite people after they've surrendered. Dangerous neck restraints, unreasonable and un unsafe use of tasers and takedowns and strikes that were not necessary. 
Yeah, um, ja- ja- Jasmine, I will say from my perspective, you know, we're going to go through the rest of these findings. Uh, none of them, they're, they're all pretty, they're all very bad. Um, but none of them really surprised me all that much except for the canine thing. I did yeah, not realize that that was Me a thing too. I, I had never... S- I'd had canine cases like that are just like sniffs for drugs and things like that. Um, but I, w- I was surprised at how they were used and how they found several incidents with, with problems like that. So I was going to say the same thing. That's the one that surprised me. The, the least surprising to me is unnecessary takedowns and strikes. Yeah. Because that's something that I would just see on body cameras all the time. Um, and like heard officers talking about how they do that to people. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, with, without the federal government stepping in, there's basically like no recourse for anything like that. The, the cops are just going to get away with that kind of thing a hundred percent of the time. And, and to the point where they're just able to talk about it openly. Uh, and it kind of takes a step like this before anybody even takes a step back and is like, well, maybe we shouldn't do that. Um, and yet to be seen if that's actually going to happen. Yeah. And I mean, like, Defense attorneys can file motions to suppress all they want for various things, but usually so long as there's probable cause or or there's no issues with the search, even if that search is them getting unnecessarily tackled and punched, you know, like a lot of times that that kind of stuff, a a judge may not suppress it if there aren't issues otherwise. Um, So I think the canine incidents were the biggest surprise to me from the first finding about excessive force. So the second finding, I guess I'll kind of put these two together because they're they're about warrant. So the first one is LMPD conducts searches based on invalid warrants. And then the next one is that they also unlawfully execute search warrants without knocking and announcing. Um, so the invalid search warrants The report says that they frequently lack the specificity and detail necessary to establish probable cause. They're typically overbroad and fail to establish probable cause for searching everything and everyone listed in the warrant. And And then, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that that almost feels like more of an indictment of the judicial system than even of the cops, which is throughout this whole document. Well, the police are the ones writing the warrants, and then the judges are the ones approving of them. And so... It's certainly a problem with both. And, you know, I know our, our we have a lot of new judges in, in Jefferson County, and I definitely know that some of them are taking a much closer look at search warrants. Uh, you know, I don't know if that can be said for all of the judges, um, but it certainly is an indictment on the judges as well. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't surprise me based on all the rest of these findings that the cops, the police officers are writing overly broad warrants. But there is a stopgap there. There is like a check there yes. that just wasn't being mm-hmm. wasn't wasn't being successful. They were just getting right through the judicial process and just having, a, you know, whatever judge just sign these warrants. Yeah. Yeah. And then the knock and announce. Um, I thought this was this statistic. I guess the the finding generally wasn't surprising to me, but the statistic was. So LMPD requested to enter without knocking and announcing only in 2.5% of cases, but they did it in over half of the cases that were reviewed. Yeah, that is um, Yeah, and and so that is, is a huge problem and, and creates really dangerous situations uh, like the one with Breonna Taylor. Exactly. Um, and this this next one is a, along the same lines of searches. It's about stops and searches. So LMPD unlawfully stops, searches, detains, and arrests people during street enforcement activities, including traffic and pedestrian stops. Um, the DOJ identified several illegal street encounters, but also went on to say they were more than just mere stops or inconveniences. They were often invasive and humiliating. Um, and then the next one, LMPD unlawfully discriminates against black people and its enforcement. LMPD disproportionately stops black people for minor traffic offenses and also engages in like prolonged detention or arresting black people for misdemeanor offenses like possession of marijuana. In one case, um, there were a few different instances kind of like this. This is just the, the one quote that I included in here, but 
In one case, an officer called a black teenager a wild animal that needs to be put down. It's absolutely egregious. Yeah, absolutely. And the, these are the kind of things that that would pop up on body cam and, and things like that. And it when you don't have any like power in the system, it, there it's hard to do anything about it. You know. Um, yeah, and and it really does take a, st- a, a such a drastic step as the involvement of the federal government to really get any movement on anything like this. Yeah, it is, it is pretty crazy. Um, yeah, I, I would say these examples are really like just uncomfortable, sad, scary. I mean, for people who don't live in this like you did for so long, like they're just shocking and surprising. I will say that the overall thrust of the finding, which is like LMPD unlawfully discriminates against black people and its enforcement on its face just seems obviously true and, and has been my yeah. whole life. Um, mm-hmm. But it is it is something that uh, putting putting some specific instances to that um really does help to kind of drive home the point and hopefully you know some steps can be taken to actually move in the right direction of these yeah and you know i just like worked in the system but this is something that black people in louisville have have been experiencing forever and have been shouting to the rooftops about and and i i hate to even like read what's in the report but i'm i'm glad that people can see it now hopefully um, so basically, for this finding, they stated in some LMPD's inadequate and dismissive response to racial bias signals that discrimination is tolerated in the department. And I, I may have even talked about this before, but I did an implicit bias training one time that was like a multidisciplinary thing. There were people there from um, there were judges, prosecutors. Uh, people from the court designated workers office and LMPD sent one representative um, and he argued with the trainer the whole time. Um, And then he wrote this like scathing evaluation and like put it on top of all the evaluations so everyone could see it. And I mean, like, that's just like my example of yeah. of how dismissive they are. Yeah, and I mean, it, it is kind of wild. Like, like you mentioned, like I mean, in every black person I've ever met in Louisville has some story about LMPD and and you know racial bias. But like, I also feel like almost every white person I know has some story like that one, where like I have seen this happen. It may not have happened to me, but it's just yeah. so pervasive in this town that it's just like it's it's unavoidable. And we have all just kind of been staring at it for so long uh, without really doing anything. So, mm-hmm. um, so the next finding LMPD violates the rights of people engaged in protected speech critical of policing. Um, so th- this one kind of has a lot to do with protest activities or and things like that. So, um. They said that LMPD often responds aggressively to police-related speech, including by taking actions that could deter a person from criticizing the police or assembling in a group to do so. Um, so this kind of sounds like like targeting a little bit <laughs> to me, yeah. like targeting people that uh, that have been active in protests against police and, and things like that. And we... I mean, we know that they've responded aggressively um, because we saw it. Yeah, we did. Mobile three years ago. Um, and then the last one. Louisville Metro and LMPD discriminate against people with behavioral disabilities when responding to them in crisis. The report said that LMPD fails to reasonably accommodate individuals with behavioral health disabilities during encounters leading to needless escalation, use of force, avoidable arrest, and serious injury. Um, and this is something, you know, I think that we've seen this across the country with with some of these police killings, that they're often people um, with some kind of behavioral health disability or intellectual disability. And I, I guess it's, it's no surprise to me working with... Um, youth and sometimes adults that that have those disabilities um they're kind of just treated like everyone else or worse when they shouldn't be <laughs> yeah I, I, here's what i'll say about this like i the the behavior that's described in the report is inexcusable by anybody but of all of the things i, I think that this is by far the most systemic failure with, with behavioral health issues 
the the police are not well trained around these sorts of mm-hmm. things and and just like we as a society do not do enough to accommodate people who have these behavioral health issues and basically just depend on the police to be able to handle it for us when they're not in a position where they're able to do it and it is it, it this one's this one's a I mean, like I said, totally inexcusable the way that the the police have acted in in a lot of these uh, instances. Just like it's not how a sane person should ever act around another person, no matter what. But, um, you know, that being said, we need to just do a better job as a society of being able to deal with people with behavioral health issues who are in crisis, especially when they're in public uh, and being in being disruptive uh, of of society. Like we just don't have a good way to do that. And we need to figure that out. Yeah. So those are the seven main findings. The report includes 36 different remedial measures. um, And in the press conference the other day, and and this is kind of in the report too, um, Merrick Garland said that LMPD has already been making some changes, which is good, like banning no-knock warrants, um, which Metro Council did. But that problems still persist, like stopping and searching black drivers based on pretext um so we we've started our reforms but um certainly haven't changed the culture yet some of the remedial measures include documenting traffic stops um, improving civilian oversight having a mobile crisis team for behavioral health crises that are like trained to use a behavioral health driven response instead of like a enforcement driven right. response mm-hmm. um actually utilizing knock and announce um like they were supposed to be doing revising civil disturbance practices in a way that prioritize first amendment protections and fully staffing internal investigations units with well-trained investigators um so those are just a few of them there's 36 in the report and um so you know what comes from all of this is that um, LMPD will be under a consent decree, which is um, basically like a a legal negotiation, a settlement between the department, the police department and the Department of Justice um, that includes steps that are going to be taken towards improvement. Um, And Merrick Garland said Louisville has agreed in principle. So um, I'm guessing that means maybe like some details still have to be ironed out um, as part of the agreement but um that that can last as long as the doj you know thinks it needs to yeah you don't really get re- get released from a consent degree until the department of justice tells you you are released and and mm-hmm. some of these go on for quite a long time the courier journal talked a lot about the one in seattle um but but i know that there have been several others in large cities that have gone on for quite a long time i think baltimore had one i i'm not totally mm-hmm. sure there's been, been a lot of cities that have been under these for a long time yeah, so the last thing here is I just wanted to note maybe a few like reactions to the DOJ report. Um, the the FOP blamed the DOJ report on the leadership failures of metro government leaders like, you know, past mayors. Um, it stated, we also very strongly feel that this report should not go unchallenged and should be dissected for evidentiary value. So um, they're not really they're not taking it for what it's worth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think that anybody should ever expect them to, and that's not, yeah, really their role. Uh, you know, but you know, in a perfect world, they, they right, would, they would, but they, it, yeah, yeah. That's doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Mayor Greenberg called the report infuriating and unacceptable, um, but said that it's an opportunity and that he ran for mayor, you know, knowing this investigation was happening and that we would have findings eventually and he wants to embrace the findings and recommendations he also acknowledged the people who have experienced discrimination and violence at the hands of police um and then today lmpd came to an agreement with the inspector general that mayor greenberg announced um that has to do with investigations for certain types of complaints um and that agreement includes the inspector general having access to like raw footage and things like that so that is a good step i think um tamika palmer brianna taylor's mother said it's heartbreaking to know that everything you've been saying since day one has to be said again through this manner 
that it took this to even have somebody look into this department. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's right. <laughs> it is heartbreaking. <laughs> um, I, I thought Bashir's statement was a little bit lackluster. Um, his was basically that the findings are concerning and he hopes, you know, we can all yeah. come together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, he's... Yeah, um... I mean, he... He was an attorney general. He, you know, Bashir was in law enforcement mm -hmm. and and is pretty has been pretty supportive of of the police, I think. You know, he's he got the FOP endorsement and whatever it was last time he ran in 19. And I, I don't know if he's going for it again. I think it's unlikely he's going to get it, especially if Daniel Cameron is the nominee. But, uh, you know, it sounds like he might be still going for it. And I do think that that is one that does kind of matter to voters out in the state. So. Um, obviously he has to do well there to win. Uh, it's really unfortunate, um, that, you know, he isn't a stronger leader on this, but it is also kind of from a political standpoint, I get it maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, and then Morgan McGarvey also made a statement essentially saying that he supports the consent decree, um, and that, you know, we can't afford to wait to make changes. And so, um, you know, that, that's where we are now. It, it, seems like the mayor's office you know is already making improvements and they they came to this agreement with the inspector general's office um just a few days after the report was released and so um they're going to have to make changes because uh they're under a consent decree that's, with the doj <laughs> that's how that goes when you're under a consent decree yeah um you know the the consent decree process is uh you know, there's been a lot of research into it. It became uh, it became legal in the 90s, I believe. It was like in the wake of, you know, some police misconduct scandals that happened. I don't know if it was directly related to like the Rodney King uh, issue, which was in like the 1992. I think it was the early 90s. Uh, but but there was a bill that was passed by the federal government that allowed for consent decrees. And so this has been something that's been studied for, I guess, like around 30 years. And, you know, there's good evidence that that consent degrees do improve the operations of police departments in their cities over time. Now, they're very expensive. They're very complicated. They're very controversial. Uh, people are going to get real mad about this, especially police and their mm -hmm. supporters uh, and the things that they're going to be made to do. But, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully uh, it, it leads to some some good stuff. We're also in a really good position because all of the people who conducted the behavior of the police chief the mayor like all of the leadership are all have been replaced so nobody's going to be overly defensive hopefully about the behavior of the past and can can look to the future with uh with clear eyes so at least that's that's my hope so yeah uh, what are yeah. you what, yeah what's your hope for the future with this jasmine i think i'm hopeful that good reforms will be made. I, I think it's just going to be so hard to change the this culture of a police department that it is pretty pervasive to me. Um, and so my hope would be that Mayor Greenberg finds the right chief to do that. We still have an interim police chief right now um, who has been committed to working with the city to make changes and you know she said that officers who don't comply with these interviews with the inspector general will be disciplined and, and things like that um but you know we're we're going to have to have a chief in place at some point that's not an interim and, and i hope that someone um who can implement reforms and and try to change the culture and and hire different types of people <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I guess i think it and i just think that part is going to be really hard um yeah I, I, one, one, I, yeah one thing i did see about the report and, and, and joe girth wrote about this in the courier journal but but he said you know they didn't name names uh and that is something i i think we could have used especially like mm -hmm. the, the judicial system uh who are these who are the judges that are yeah. signing all these warrants you know how many of the officers that perpetrated this activity like the, this behavior that's outlined in this report are still employed at lmpd like all, all of that kind of stuff is is stuff that would have been relevant and i wish we had known 
Um, but yeah, that you know, consequences for actions is not something that LMPD has really had to live with for a very long time. Um, and that's kind of, I would say if I was to boil down like all my hopes into one thing, that would be like the one thing, like bad behavior has some sort of repercussions for, for the people mm-hmm. who perpetrate it. Cause that just hasn't been the case. All right. Well, we'll leave that there. Uh, obviously a lot to go, um, a lot to go there. This consent degree is going to be going on for years, likely. Uh, I think that's most likely it will be for years. Uh, so, you know, we'll be, we'll have plenty to talk about in the years to come. Um, but Let's move on to talk about the legislature, which is in full swing. And so, Jasmine, we've been doing this for, I don't know, five, six years at this point. Um, And this is how it's always gone and how it's always gone um, in the years prior as well, before we were working in this, where, like, basically the legislature kind of sits on their thumbs for half the legislative session or more. And then in the last few days, they sweep in and do a ton of business. Um, And and that process has really started. So all of the stuff um, that has been prioritized in this legislative session is starting to move. So, you know, I'm going to go through this probably in a day by day type situation, and then just kind of talk about where kind of these high priority pieces of legislation are. But just to talk about where we are specifically, I think today was day 26 of the legislative session. So so they're going to have like one more day before the veto period begins. And then after that, uh, they will have, you know, the, the veto period will happen. Governor Bashir will have time to veto or sign legislation into law, and then they will come back for two legislative days at the end and then uh, override all the vetoes, likely all the vetoes that Governor Bashir makes, and pass anything that's left hanging that they think they can get the governor to sign. So that's that's where we're at with this. So here's the stuff that started happening on Monday. So in the House, um, okay, so first of all, like all of the bills that I'm going to talk about, like uh, that happened yesterday um, are kind of lower profile bills. We're going to save like the the stuff that happened today with some of the higher profile, like anti-trans legislation, the gray machine stuff, like all of that kind of happened on Tuesday. The stuff that happened Monday is stuff that's kind of flown under my radar, but it's really bad. So we need to talk about it. Um, Yeah, I was thinking yesterday, I was like, we haven't really talked about the the barrel tax thing and that is was probably the most interesting vote yeah that we've seen yeah very geographic based as opposed to kind of partisan based mm-hmm. um so so that that is the where we'll start so those that's two bills that we want to talk about and that's hb5 and hb447 and these bills are still like they were just passed by the house yesterday so they they just kind of started the process so um, this is this is a bourbon barrel tax rollback and also a revenue floor for schools. That's what the two bills do. Uh, they work in conjunction with one another. So so localities in central Kentucky, where the bourbon industry is mostly located, they tax bourbon barrels for a significant portion of the revenue. They're just like, if you have any bourbon barrels that are aging in barns or wherever, there's like a five cent or what? I don't even know how much it is. Some amount of money that's taxed on each barrel. And localities make a lot of money for schools, for police departments, for sheriff's departments, for like their health departments, all of the local kind of agencies that operate in those places. That's where a lot of their money comes from. But guess what? Bourbon companies don't like to pay taxes. Uh, They are opposed to having to pay the government for things. Um, and, and one of the things that their lobbyists have said, and, and, and you know, I, you take this for what it's worth. Maybe it's convincing. Maybe it's not. New companies that get started in the bourbon industry because it's an aged spirit, they end up having to pay a significant amount of taxes long before they see any revenue from their product. So you got to make the bourbon, get all the raw materials, get all the land, get all the barrels, put all the stuff in the barrels, and then put the barrels into the, uh, the spot and then let it age for whatever it is, three years, five years seven years i mean some of that stuff is 20 years old before it comes out i think uh i'm not the biggest bourbon guy robin tells robert tells us how to make bourbon (laughs) yeah yeah you you, listener you likely know more than i do about this process but yeah like before if you're a new company and you want to make like a four-year or four or five-year-old bourbon that's four or five years worth of taxes that you got to pay on all your barrels before you even have a product that you can sell now that's that's the case that they made take it or or leave it. So that's why they don't want to pay the taxes. And the <laughs> their lobbyists are like, you know, all of these new bourbon uh, companies, they're looking at locating in Indiana or Tennessee or Virginia or whatever and, and not coming to Kentucky, uh, that we're going to lose this industry, which is, of course, what everybody always says when they're lobbyists. Like, 
this key industry, you're going to lose it. Like this happens in California all the time with the film industry. Um, this happens in you know North Carolina with the furniture industry, like any sort of industry that that's like key to an area. They're like, you're going to lose it. Uh, if you don't make not taxes. So that, that's just kind of how that goes. Um, so anyways, uh, HB5, what it does is it phases out the bourbon barrel tax over time. It goes, I think, all the way out to like the 2030s in terms of before it's fully phased out. And, of course, that would put a huge crunch on local governments in central Kentucky, uh, including on school districts. And so what HB 447 does um, is that it works in conjunction with HB5 to create a, a revenue floor for school districts. So even if you know local governments lose a ton of money, and aren't able to replace it fully. There's actually like a floor. You know, your your school district cannot make, cannot you know have less money than this. Cannot have appropriations lower than whatever they were funded at. I think this year. And if you don't have enough revenue to actually like pay that, like to have that much money, this the the state government's going to step in and fund those schools. So that's essentially what those two bills do. Um, both bills passed out of the House, and yes, Jasmine is correct. They were very close. Um, they they uh, were closer, I think, than people expected them to be. And the the kind of the split in terms of the uh, the legislature uh, was was kind of interesting in terms of who voted against it and who was for it. It was very geographic. All of the legislators from these areas voted against it, and just some people who like bourbon and don't want to lose the industry, um, you know, they voted they voted the other way. These bills still have to go through the Senate, so we'll see what happens. I don't think they moved today. All right, that was the bourbon barrel thing. HB 551, that is the sports gambling bill for this year. It actually, it managed to pass the House, and it wasn't really close this year. It got more than 60 votes in the House. That That's pretty well expected. Um, this, the Senate has been the stumbling block for, for sports gambling this, uh, you know, in the, in the past. And so the Senate actually is going to be taking this up in committee tomorrow, uh, which is kind of a big step. This hasn't really gotten that far in the Senate before, but they are going to meet. And I would, I would expect it to actually get a vote in the Senate, uh, this year. So, so be watching for that tomorrow. If that's something that you care about, Jasmine, do you, you have any high hopes for the gambling bill this year? Um, I think higher hopes than usual. I thought it was in committee. I thought it passed committee today. It passed the House committee today and then went to the floor. and passed. Oh, okay. So it did both. Yeah. So and then it's going to be in Senate committee tomorrow. Okay. HB 146. Um, this is another one of those bad bills that kind of flew under my radar. So, so last year we had HB 4, which was a huge benefit cut. And we talked about HB 4 last year a lot. Um, it was pretty egregious in terms of just the amount of assistance that it removed from Kentuckians who need it. Took basically just like took food out of the mouths of hungry children. Uh, that was what HB four did. And this one is HB one forty six. It reduces the m- maximum number of weeks of unemployment to twelve from sixteen, so cuts four weeks of potential unemployment. Um, it was passed. Uh, by the house uh and i think it was so it's going to be heading towards governor Bashir soon uh and i think it's highly highly likely that he's going to veto that bill so yeah just had not even heard about cutting four weeks of unemployment from uh from us but you know that happened uh yeah okay and then the last one that happened kind of yesterday that i wanted to mention was sb 126 so jasmine you may remember in 2021 there was hb3 which is the legislature changing the rules for how constitutional challenges worked so that they all didn't have to run through fa or run through franklin county um you know, and Philip Shepard was elected to another eight-year term uh, just last year, uh, and so the legislature doesn't like that. Uh, this bill, this bill, kind of tweaks the the types of challenges that can go through that process of having a different county selected and who's able to ask for a, a venue change. Just some small changes to HB three, but they're messing with this process again, uh, and and you know that just another reminder of some bad stuff that happened in the past. Um, Okay, so that was the that was the House on Monday. Yesterday in the Senate, there were two bills I wanted to highlight. HB three sixty. This was originally a shell bill uh, that the House, you know, shifted. They pulled out the old language, 
replaced a committee substitute uh, to include $35 million in annual tax cuts, uh, along with $6.2 million in, in new revenue that would come in from the road fund. So just kind of moving some tax stuff around. Uh, the, the cuts don't appear to be specifically strategic. It wasn't like, oh, you know, we're going to take a new direction with our tax system we're going to do something different it was just like oh this industry gets a tax cut and this industry gets a tax cut and this industry gets a tax cut based on i don't know but i would guess who talked to the leadership uh, and was able to convince them through whatever means that their industry needed better a better deal the biggest one i think is marketing services uh marketing services are now exempt from sales taxes uh, which seems just kind of random. Why would you do that? And the the reason that the legislator who sponsored the legislation said was, you know, we exempted advertising, and there just didn't seem like a good reason why we should exempt advertising and not also exempt marketing. I don't know, maybe just tax advertising as well. I don't know, but uh, that whatever. Like that that is that is something that happened based on some lobbying by the marketing industry. So that bill was passed in the Senate on Monday. It was originally a House bill, so it had passed the House already. Um, it was amended in the Senate to include a bunch of these kind of different uh, tax cuts. Uh, but the House did not agree with the changes. They did not agree with the concurrence. So that bill is now going to go to a conference committee. Um, and that will have to be worked out um, in the next couple of days. Okay, that was the one I, first one I wanted to talk about in the Senate. The, the next one is actually a companion to it, sort of. Originally, HB 360 also included um, more money uh, from the Eastern and Western Kentucky safe funds, which were raised for the da- disasters, the hurricane in West, the tornado in Western Kentucky, and the floods in Eastern Kentucky to create uh, housing, uh, housing trust funds. Uh, and then 360, of course, got all this extra stuff in it. 448 also had some changes that were happened. Uh, but basically what this bill would do would be to create rural housing trust funds from that safe fund money. It passed the Senate on Monday, and also the House didn't agree on that one. So both HB 360 and HB 448 bills that were passed by the Senate on Monday are headed to conference committees. And we will probably see what the compromises look like at the end of this week. So that was Monday. We all went to bed. Uh, something crazy happened on Monday night, but I'll actually get into that in just a second. I want to talk about some of the bigger things that happened in committee on Tuesday. Okay, so relevant, remaining to be relevant, HB 470, which is the big, what we're now calling the omnibus anti-trans bill. Uh, we've talked about HB 470 quite a bit. It's the bill that banned gender-affirming care for kids, uh, surgery, as well as hormones. We've talked about this in several shows in in the past. But it was actually amended to include a lot of the don't say gay language, which was heavily criticized in Florida last year. This was something that caused like quite a bit of a national outcry. Basically, the language forbids schools in Kentucky from discussing sexual orientation or gender issues at all, hence the don't say gay uh, term. That was a new addition to the bill. The bill had not had that before, um, and it made even some conservatives very uncomfortable. Uh, a lot of them still voted for it anyway. It did pass out of committee by a 6-3 vote, so they're deeply concerned but not going to stop it. Um, but multiple Republican senators said did say they were going to pass it in committee because they had received assurances that the bill would change on the floor. And they said that if it remained this way on the floor, they would vote against it. So um, I don't know what those changes are, but this bill is very, very, very bad. Um, and even if it is passed in the Senate, no matter what changes happened, it will have to go back to the House for a concurrence. So here's hoping they just screw up the technical version of that and somehow and like run out of time, uh, either to you know at some point uh, and and aren't able to pass it. So that's uh, that's my hope there. Um, during testimony on this bill in committee, former Republican legislator Jerry Miller actually showed up to testify against the bill. That was a pretty shocking thing to see. He he yeah. said that he had a, a, a trans grandchild um, and, and would fight, you know, fight for them. So it's that's, you know, nice to have him on our side. But Republicans were not swayed by Jerry Miller, even one of their own who had been a strong leader for them for quite a long time, helped them, was one of the major leaders in the Republican-led legislature for quite a long time. And Yeah, I mean, he definitely, he was not like a nobody mm-hmm. in the House. 
not a backbencher, was a serious, important person in the house. But they, you know, was I, you know, it just goes to show you that once they decide to do something, there's really nothing that can get them off yeah. the track. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the bill did not get a vote in the house on on Tuesday, so they're likely going to save that for later at some point. And and I don't really know how how they expect to get this all passed in time. So we'll we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Why why do you think all of this language was was added when it may like reduce the chance of getting something passed? Like, I mean, I, I have a I, there's a bunch of hypotheses I have. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, the the conversations between the leaders in the chambers themselves, the Senate chamber, uh, and and also just their newer members, and and this is true of the House as well. Um, like the the people who are the caucus leaders and then the committee chairman aren't in great communication and there's like leadership um, the leadership of the committees is hearing a lot from their membership that they want to make sure this bill gets through so they will just like tack it to something despite the fact that leadership is like well we don't have the votes for that that's going to make it a lot closer and they're just like well we got to do it anyway because we promised this person we'd vote on this or whatever this was a different bill this don't say gay bill Mm -hmm. was a different bill they they just kind of tacked onto it I think it was SB 150 um and that doesn't have any readings but you know obviously they wanted it to pass so you know yeah, yeah One, i just 150 150 is like the max wise mm-hmm. discretionary don't say gay right, bill. right not quite a don't say gay bill but um yeah the kind of the compromise bill okay it seemed more promising than some of the harsher ones. Yeah, and I'm not sure what the status is on that one. I do know that there's like some amendments that are being filed to that bill, and so it may start to move also. But whether whether it goes like in addition to this bill, which seems like it goes further than that bill anyway, mm-hmm. I don't really know how they would work in conjunction with each other. Yeah. yeah. I mean, at this point in the session, things just start to get really crazy. And all of the promises that got made about you said you're going to do this for me, you said you're going to do this for me, and when are we going to talk about this, and how is this going to happen? Like, they all just kind of chickens come home to roost and maybe you should have made better use of your time but it always gets a little crazy like this so uh, that would be my my first guess as to what's going on with this bill okay so that's that's that i mean and and that's a that's probably the most important issue that we've been talking about in the session but we got a lot of other stuff to get to for sure okay so sb 47 is the medical marijuana bill and it got a hearing in the senate today which is very unusual because Mm -hmm. just like many issues uh, you know, that we've talked about where before. they go to die. It's where they go to die. Yeah. Uh, there were a lot of people in the committee room, but that's also because they were hearing the gray machines bill at the same committee. And they were wearing <laughs> green shirts. Right. So they were wearing green shirts, uh, which was just a weird coincidence. Uh, and I guess I think I'll, I, I still think that those people are just kind of like hired at like 15 bucks an hour to go sit in the committee room or whatever. But anyways, <laughs> this bill got a hearing. There was a lot of very gripping testimony. Um, and there was a committee sub that happened, um, which we don't really have access to yet. Um, Joe Sanka did tweet about it. He said that the bill will include cancer, chronic pain, epilepsy, multiple sclerosis, nausea, PTSD, and in his words, quote, anything else UK Cannabis Research Center finds appropriate, unquote. So that's what's going to be covered under the bill in terms of conditions. And it's also a no smoke bill. So I guess you have to take edibles or pills or i don't know i don't know how <laughs> I'm, I'm i'm not a marijuana expert i don't know how it's gonna work but uh that that yeah, is yeah. There, there's like oils too mm. vapes i guess i don't know how the vapes work if vapes count as smoking or not like that's a, that's I, I think they were included in a prior version of the like last year's bill maybe but i'm not i'm not sure if they're in this year's version or not yeah, so it, it did actually pass the Senate committee eight to three, including a vote from Senator Thayer, who has been kind of an opponent of this in the past. Uh, that's a big deal. But Senator Thayer also said that it would get a vote in the Senate, but it does not currently have the votes to pass in his estimation. It's his job to kind of know that. So that seems mm-hmm. likely to be true. Um, and so, yeah, there's still work to be done on this issue, but I think medical marijuana is probably more possible now than ever before. This is an issue that's kind of been making, making its way through. This is not the best bill, the not, not the best version of how this program could work, but you know, something being better than nothing. Um, I think it's probably good news. So what are your, do you have hopes for, for this bill, Jasmine? 
I really haven't had much hope for sports betting or medical marijuana the last few years, but getting a Senate hearing, I think it is a big step and Damon Thayer being more on board is a big step. So I feel more optimistic than I ever have, but we are getting real close on time. Yeah. Yeah, uh, we are. I think it's likely to get a floor vote in the Senate, which would get people on the record to kind of say what where they are. So we'll be able to learn, like, who are the real big stumbling blocks to this? It's not going to be all Republicans, right? There's going to be Republicans who are on the right side of this issue. And we'll really know who are the the people that, you know, um, need to be targeted uh, for uh, challengers on the Democratic side and maybe even in Republican primaries. Something that we need to talk about, even though it's not super relevant to things that are going to pass the legislature, I don't think, is SB 156. So I I wrote a pretty significant piece of this segment about this, uh, and it ended up ending in a really crazy way. So last night, like while I'm writing out the notes to all this and while like the legislature is wrapping up its business, um, there was a significant bomb dropped. Uh, SB 156, which had been a bill about a different uh, education subject, it had been about reading. Um, it was significantly altered to include a major audit of JCPS, which could potentially have led to a split of JCPS into multiple districts. So I went to bed last night really angry. I mean, I've been angry about I've been processing my emotions about a lot of these other issues for several months now, but this one was kind of dropped on our laps and I was just like, what, what the heck? I was just really, really frustrated by this. Olivia Croth of the Courier Journal really got the scoop on this. So, you know, she, she's great. A lot of this stuff in this segment was kind of like crib from this. So she, she was on top of this. So subscribe to the Courier Journal, I guess. Um, the bill, as it was written, would have asked the state auditor's office to do a full operational audit, and you know that would have had to go to finding out how JCPS could be quote reconstituted into two or more school districts unquote. So the 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 audit would have or the the audit would have had to been paid for by JCPS alone. Um, and, and yeah, like we already just audited JCPS. It was under audit during most of the Bevan administration. It was released from that audit in fall of 2020. That's of course, after governor Bashir had come into office. Um, and yeah, this audit would have gone to the auditor's office instead of being done at the board of education level, which, you know, is of, of course, outside the purview of governor Bashir. So Olivia Croth pointed out on Twitter that the courts ruled in 2022 that they couldn't specifically target JCPS in legislation. I think what she's referring to there is that charter school legislation uh, or that or like the vouchers legislation that basically only allowed like counties of a certain size, uh, which was specifically targeting JCPS and was over uh, overturned by by the court system. Uh, so this was where we were sitting. Like this was going to be heard in the, you know, the the Senate Education Committee on Tuesday morning, and and you know, it seemed like likely that this was headed towards like a last second passage, and was just kind of the secret bill that snuck in. Um, and in a wild twist, the gambit failed. Uh, the committee's substitute was not accepted by the committee, and that essentially killed that entire proposal. However, you know, of course, it's worth saying that nothing's ever truly dead. The committee can come up with another bill that it can substitute this language into. And, you know, they could just change, tweak some stuff on different bills and let it pass or whatever. So nothing's ever truly dead until Sine die. Um, But but it was this game. It failed um, and it will require some more work to get it to pass. Um, Just in, in terms of in terms of why it failed. Uh, I think, you know, a good example is Scott Lewis, who's a Republican from Western Kentucky, like outside of Owensboro, like just east of Owensboro. He said, uh, you know, he's a he he was previously a school superintendent and he kind of went after the bill. He was like, this doesn't seem fair. You know, why are we making them pay for stuff? Why are we having them pay to tell us things we already know? Uh, this seems dumb. Um, and, you know, it's worth mentioning that a lot of the folks, especially on the education committee, are from the education industry. They have worked in this world before and, you know, wouldn't want this to happen to them either. So they're not, you know, necessarily – um, crazy about this legislation and they didn't accept the substitute so this crazy wild last second gambit to really mess with jcps failed 
best news all session maybe so i don't know jasmine what did you what when did you catch wind of this and what did you uh what did you think as this whole process was was happening um i also caught wind of it last night and i i think i don't know it's like there's so there's so many like bad crazy bills it's hard for me to tell like which one are they going to make happen and what and what's just going to die because they don't have the support. And so um, I'm not sure like what I thought the chances of this one was, but it, it just seemed crazy to me. <laughs> it, I think like I didn't focus on this one as much individually because it, it's just part of so many. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, I, I had like all these thoughts about what I was going to say. Like, as we're talking about this, about how, like, they've really just beaten us down over the past, like, six or seven years as they've been in the majority. And they just, you know, they just, mm-hmm. the, the teacher movement, like, you know, it's tough for them to, like, muster the strength to do it. But really, like, I think a lot of the, I, I, I have like almost the opposite emotions now, where it seems like a lot of the hard work that was done in 2018 and 19 by teachers who were prost- protesting these, like, really egregious things are, are really starting to bear fruit, right? Like, people are, like... No, we're not going to do this crazy thing. It's crazy, and we're going to get in trouble. So we're just going to ignore it and, and move on past it. So hopefully hopefully it's uh, uh, portends a better future for education policy in the future. I don't have a lot of hope for that, but uh, but maybe. Okay, so that was mainly the stuff I wanted to talk about that happened yesterday. But we have been consistently updating this uh, this document today uh, in, in terms of things that have happened today. So one thing that happened today, and and this is kind of all bigger stuff that has has been going on on the floor. Um, SB 62 is a bill that seeks to protect the privacy of donors to nonprofit organizations, unquote. It was important to talk about this because it was heavily criticized by the Kentucky Press Association. And they said it would really reduce transparency because um, people who are records custodians would face a lot of hurdles in terms of getting things released because of these privacy requirements and some of they thought some of the things they thought were were kind of um, over the top. It did pass the House anyway. I think it still needs a concurrence in the Senate, um, but it seems likely that that's going to pass. So that's bad for transparency. Um, I'm not really sure who was asking for this, but Whitney Westerfield was the sponsor. So that's one. Um, the next one to talk about is SB 107. Uh, this was a very wide-ranging bill earlier in the session. We actually did a segment about it at one point. Um, it would really mess with the way that the governor had the ability to put people on the school board, set up this whole big system by which, like, you know, the, the different the the governor could put people on a nominating committee, and that nominating committee had to come up with people. Uh, and it was a really complicated process, but it was mostly removed. And now all that, all that's left is the Senate can confirm the education commissioner. Um, every four years, the education commissioner has to come before the Senate and be confirmed. So that, that does really kind of constrict the way in which the governor is able to do this because he's going to have to find somebody who is, you know, acceptable to the Senate, to the Kentucky Senate. Um, yeah, so I think it'd be tough for like somebody like Commissioner Glass to get the job again, mm-hmm. um, and I don't really know how that would work with the Senate being in Republican hands and, and the governorship being in the the, uh, the Democrats' hands. But but we will likely see because this bill is likely gonna pass. Um, okay, uh, HB three. Oof, we've talked about this one at length too. It is the juvenile justice bill. Um, Jasmine has talked about this at length, all of the kind of repercussions and most of the stuff that's in the bill remained in the bill as it moved all the way through the legislature. It did pass the Senate on a 29 to seven vote. Um, it does include that part about mandatory holds. It does include that part about opening the records of juveniles that those are really, really bad things. There's really, really, really bad Mm -hmm. things. And those are likely going to make it, um, into law. The bill does include money to reopen the juvenile detention facility in Louisville, which is very much needed, especially if we're going to continue incarcerating children at the rate that the judicial system seems to want to. Um, uh, seems like there would be maybe a better solution to some of these problems than incarcerating all these people. But uh, it uh, if we're going to just keep doing that better to have them closer to Louisville than in Adair County or whatever. So um, that's, that's, I guess good. 
Um, it does require uh, a concurrence in the House from some changes that happened in the Senate, but most most of the stuff that's in this bill continues to be in this bill. Another bill where a lot of Republicans ring, wrung, wrung their hands and were like, there's a lot of bad stuff in this bill, but I'm still going to vote for it. So, um, yeah, yeah, very disappointing for a lot of people on this specific bill. If you think a bill's bad, you can vote no, but they they just keep not doing that. If you think a bill's if you think a bill's good, you can say you think it's bad and still vote yes. Yeah, uh, I think is probably the more relevant truth there. Um, okay, and then and then the last thing to talk about that that actually moved today is HB five ninety four, and that is the gray machines ban, and it was passed out of a Senate committee this morning on an eight to two vote, and was then passed by the full Senate today. It was clean in the Senate, no changes, so it actually is going to go directly to Governor Bashir. I think it's likely he's going to sign it, um, and so this crazy issue is going to shift to the courts. I don't care. I just don't care about gray machines. I, that's what I decided after all this. Like, it's highly dramatic, but, man, there's other stuff going on that's way more important, I guess. I, I, I hope that they, you know, found people that needed the, you know, 30 bucks or whatever they paid them to go to that committee meeting and hold signs. <sighs> okay. Um, all right. So that's all the stuff that actually moved. But there are some other – there are two bills I just just wanted to highlight in terms of they, they may actually start moving soon, like tomorrow or the rest of the week. The first one is HB 542. We talked about this bill, too. It's Savannah Maddox's bill that allows people to carry concealed deadly weapons at colleges and universities. Um, it's on the 3-7 show last week, if you want to hear more about it. It's actually on the orders of the day already. Um, there have been a lot of changes made to it throughout the process, but I'm not totally sure what they are. So that's likely going to be going through the House and maybe even the Senate uh, in the next day or two. Um, the other bill I wanted to highlight was SB5. Um, that's the book banning bill. Jasmine talked about this on the 228 show. Um, it sets up a process for parents to ask for schools to remove books. It's also on the House's orders for the day. So it's likely uh, going to make its way. I don't know. It, it, it likely will make its way through the House and have to be concurred with by the Senate. Uh, but it is running really short on time. So we'll see how, how far if this bill is able to make it through the whole process. Um, very very soon so both of those are very bad so let's hope for some stumbling blocks for those bills as well um yeah anything you want to say about either one of those jasmine no i don't have anything to add all right well the last thing i wanted to mention just to end on a little bit of a nice note is that um at least for now sb 115 the drag ban um, is 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 dead as it stands as SB 115. It doesn't have the readings it needs to pass in the state that it exists upon. Um, so there's a couple of options that the legislature has. They can still pass SB 115. They would just have to pass it during the veto period and basically force Andy Bashir to veto the bill, which they can be like, Andy Bashir loves drag queens or whatever when they go to <laughs> campaign in your conservative yeah. areas of the state. Um, or they can attach the language in SB 115 to uh, a bill that has enough readings uh, and pass it that way. I'm not sure how controversial this bill is among the Republicans in the legislature. It definitely has gotten a lot of ink. A lot of people are talking about it. We really don't like it. Um, but I don't know if it's a close vote in, in the legislature. It's likely to not be attached if it's close. Um, and But but I don't know. So they, they have some options, but it looks pretty dead. And it is dead as, as SB 115. So a little bit of good news there. So, there you go. That's the legislative update. A lot of stuff going on. We'll have a much more thorough wrap-up next week, um, which will be during the veto period, how all this stuff ended, um, and, and that's when we'll talk about that. So, a lot of stuff to talk about. We went an hour without a guest, Jasmine, talking about the LMPD DOJ findings and the the, the end of the legislative session or the, the last piece of the legislative session. So, whew, how are you feeling after all that? I've been worn out the last couple of days. Just, I, I feel this way every legislative session when there's just a flurry of bad bills moving quickly and getting added to other bills. Yeah. It all comes crashing down at once, and it, it always stresses me out a little bit. But by the what? time people listen to this, I think 
other things will have already happened. You know, the Senate <laughs> was in recess and they may take a vote on Man, I should... HB 470 tonight. And so, it, you know, it's it's always bad at the end the, these last few years. It is. I, I should probably check to see if they I think that they ended. They they recessed. All right. Yeah, I guess they're going to come back tonight at some point uh, and talk yeah. some more. So anyways, uh, there you go. All right, Jasmine. Well. Until next week, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at MyOldKYPod. They can also like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing, like reading these bills for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash Podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Demcast Network and the Forward Kentucky Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week.